Lord, it is a powerful name. Lord, and you said that it is the name above all names, that it, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, Lord, and tongue confess that you are Lord. Lord, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but Jesus. So, Lord, thank you that we can hear from you, Lord, and hear from your word today. I pray, Lord, that we would sit and we would listen, and, Lord, that we would be changed by your word. In the name and powerful name of Jesus, amen. Good morning, Gateway. We're talking about humility today, and some of you really need to listen in. So this morning, we're going to be starting with chapter 2 of Philippians, and this is a critically important lesson today for all of us. You're going to hear a little bit about why I wish I had some kind of song and dance this morning to underscore how important this is, but the passage that we're talking about today, I just, in your own mind and in your heart, I want you to bold it and underline it and highlight it, because this is critical for all of us. It's critical for what we're doing here. It's also critical for you, for what you do in your homes. So we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I don't think that any of you are here by accident. So I think we need to hear what God has to say, and I believe God is speaking through this this morning. All right, so generally speaking, let me kind of introduce our whole series of conversations. The letter to the Philippians is a challenge to us to move away from casual spirituality to a God-honoring, Christ-promoting, focused, intentional, gospel-declaring growth culture of authentic Christian community. So it's a challenge. This letter challenges us to move away from casual spirituality and to move aggressively in the direction of a God-honoring, Christ-promoting, focused, intentional, gospel-declaring growth culture of authentic Christian community. That's what we're trying to do here. All right, so summary, big picture. Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. If you've been here over the last several weeks, you will remember our discussing some of these things. He wrote to a group of friends, friends whom he had launched into the faith, friends about whom he had heard good news. So here's what Paul has heard about these friends. They had maintained their faith even in the face of opposition. They were growing spiritually, and they had remained faithful to Paul, both as a friend and as a spiritual mentor. They had sent a friend from Philippi to visit Paul, to check on him, to let him know their concern, and also to bring him gifts. His name was Epaphroditus, and that's what occasioned the writing of this letter. And to these friends, these friends who are stepping in, these friends who have remained faithful, Paul speaks to them and to us about more. More love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight so that we can make sharper and wiser and better decisions. We talked about that week too. More depth of surrender to the sovereignty of God. We talked about that week three. More intentional focus on my relationship with Christ. More and deeper community and connection with one another. And more willingness to share with others the story of Jesus and what God is doing in my life. More. Casual spirituality is not good enough. Your life is too important. You and I need to be dedicated to spiritual growth. And listen, a significant part of that spiritual growth will involve the culture we create here as a group, as a church. A significant part of our spiritual growth will involve the culture we create here as a church, as a group. We talked about this a little bit 
two weeks ago, Sunday before Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to get even more specific today. In fact, Paul is going to cover one of the keys to our success together. Paul is going to cover this morning one of the most important factors of our life together. In fact, I believe this is the key to our effectiveness and success in all relationships. If you want to be a successful husband or father, if you want to be a successful and effective wife or mother, if you want to be a brother or a sister or a friend that you were designed to be, if you want to be an effective manager at work, if you want to build an effective growth culture here at Gateway, this morning's lesson is key. All right, so we're going to do three things today. First, we're going to read the passage and talk about it. We just give it a, a, a flyover analysis of the passage. And then secondly, we're going to step aside from the passage and we're going to talk about an elaborate illustration. We're going to look at, for a second at an illustration from the world of business that weirdly illustrates this principle beautifully. We're going to take a while wrapping up this illustration because it's rich. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some practical helps in uh, diving in to the direction of uh, humility. All right, so if you would, let's kick this off with a word of prayer, and then we'll read God's word. Father, I thank you for calling us together this morning. That's what we believe. We believe you have convened us. You have drawn us, each of us, to occupy this seat. So this morning, we give you permission to speak into our lives, into our character, into our hearts, whatever it is that you need to say to us about the mind and the heart of Jesus. This incredible, beautiful, rich humility. Hear us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I usually, on Sunday mornings here at Gateway, I usually, almost always, I read from the New International Version. That's an English translation that's one of the most popular translations around today. The New International Version sometimes adds words and phrases into the original flow of the original language to help the English reader, and it, it makes it easier to understand. They did a lot of that with the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So instead of the New International Version, I'm going to be reading this morning from the English Standard Version, which is another English translation of the Bible. It's another rich and beautiful translation. So we're going to be looking at the English Standard Version, and I'm saying that for those of you who are regulars with us, you probably have an NIV Bible. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to look at Philippians chapter 2, but all of you can look without excuse at mygateway.life. If you go under current sermon series today, it will have the scripture for you, and it's going to be on the screen, and you're going to help me read a, a portion of it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, for those of you who've been keeping score at home, that word participation is our word koinonia. It means connection, partnership, participate, community. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
in fact, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is a beautiful, ancient, probably hymn that Paul is quoting to make his point. I want us to read this together, if you would. So begin reading with me in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so Paul begins this discussion by offering a series of elegant rhetorical conditions to set up his central point. Have you had any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, etc.? And he anticipates the obvious answer is yes, of course you have. And at that point, he brings us immediately to his central concern. So then, be of the same mind, have the same love, just, just be completely united. The central point is be like-minded, be one in spirit and purpose. In other words, this, this church stuff, this relationship stuff, this business of being connected to one another, this is a really big deal in who you are, in how you grow spiritually, in how you grow as a person. This is a big deal. But he doesn't leave it there. He gets very practical. And he tells us that one of the keys to developing these kind of connections, and if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this, one of the keys to developing successful relationships, I believe it's the most important key, is humility. One of the keys to developing successful relationships is humility. The Christian thinker and best-selling author C.S. Lewis said this, to get even near humility, even for a moment, is a drink of cold water to a person in the desert. So if you want to be a drink of cold water for your family when they're in the desert, if you want to be a life-giving part of your work environment or of this fellowship, humility is the key. Finally, Paul offers us a model and a standard for humility, colon, Jesus. Then what follows when he's describing Jesus in, in verses 6 through 11 that you read with me, this is one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. This passage is often written about, in fact, it's touched on in, in many Christian songs. A lot of the songs we sing here on Sunday morning, you'll hear the familiar refrains from that hymn in verses 6 through 11 of Philippians chapter, chapter 2. That's because the themes that are discussed in this hymn are so epic. Paul touches on three of the most titanic Christian beliefs in this one little section. And all of that, by the way, all of that titanic doctrine, all of that he offers here in service of his central idea. And again, his central idea is be like Jesus, be humble. Okay, so, but let, quickly, let's depart from the central idea for a moment and just touch on those three titanic beliefs that Paul touches on, and then we'll get back to the main point real quickly. First of all, obviously, Paul alludes to the doctrine that Christians have, have come to believe is the Trinity. 
The word Trinity, of course, is not used in the Bible, but the concept is hinted at everywhere, especially in the New Testament and including here. He says Jesus is in form God. He is equal to God. The second great Christian doctrine that this hymn just touches on, this passage also has been critically important to Christians in their understanding of Jesus' nature. What was Jesus? Who was he? The very earliest followers had to begin to wrestle with this and figure this out. What is this? I've told the story many times here at Gateway that some of you know the New Testament story when there's a storm and the Bible says the disciples are afraid and they go, wake Jesus up, don't you care about us? We're going to drown. These are fishermen. They know the, the Sea of Galilee. They know what happens when these storms come up. Jesus gets up and says, oh, you of little faith, goes to the edge of the boat and he screams out, quiet! And the storm gets completely still and then the Bible says an amazing thing. It uses a stronger word for fear. It says they're terrified. And they look at one another and they say, what kind of man is this? They don't have a category. They're they're trying to figure this out. What is he? And they begin to realize over time, he's fully God and fully man in his nature. The third titanic Christian doctrine that this passage uh, touches on is, is it spells out clearly the end of all things, that Jesus' ultimate glorification. And this fancy word for super-duper dude. And he's going to be worshipped by everyone, everywhere. But it's fascinating to me that these gigantic Christian ideas, these mind-bending, world-changing ideas, if they're true, reality-altering. He marshals all of those gigantic thoughts in this passage in the service of another idea. Perhaps an even more important idea, that our Jesus is profoundly humble. If we want to be successful in relationships, then we too will be like Jesus. We will be humble. Okay, let's depart for a minute and offer... Uh, an elaborate illustration. I'm going to go a long way to make a simple point, but it's a, it's a cool journey. In 2001, a guy named Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great, and the subtitle is Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't, and he gathered a whole group of really talented, highly educated research assistants, and they spent five years culling through an enormous amount of data to identify the factors that make businesses great and sustainingly great. So what they decided to do is set down some conditions for this whole research project, and here's how they defined it. I'm quoting now Collins. More precisely, we searched for a specific pattern. We searched for cumulative stock returns of a given company at or below the general stock market for 15 years, punctuated by a transition point, and then cumulative returns after the transition point, at least three times better than the market over the next 15 years. So they looked for companies that were tooling along at or below the market for years, but stable, solid companies. There was some kind of transition point, and then this company took off. And they wanted to know what those conditions were that allowed that company to take off so, you know, perhaps other companies could replicate it. They began by investigating 
1,435 companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 from 1965 to 1995, and they only found, they narrowed it down to 11 companies that fit their research criteria. Here is Collins' summary as he looks at the companies they identified. I'm going to quote him. Uh, those that made the cut averaged cumulative stock returns 6.9 times greater than the general stock market for the 15 years after the point of transition. 6.9 times greater than the average stock market return, which already was growing. That means a dollar invested in a mutual fund of the good to great companies in 1965 grew to $470 by the year 2000, compared to $56 in the general stock market. These are remarkable numbers made all the more so by the fact that they came from previously unremarkable companies. So, once they'd identified the 11 companies, they accumulated a vast amount of research. Financial data, they, they got access to the inside of these companies, huge amounts of uh, interviews with managers at various levels, workers at various levels, even clients. And they came up with seven features that all of these companies have in common. And there was a rich, strong vein for each of these features in each of these companies. I'm going to give you this, the seven, but the first six, ignore. Go get the book. It's a great read if you've never read it. But the first six are put the right people in the right place. Secondly, confront brutal facts, yet never lose faith. These companies told themselves the truth about themselves. Third, what he called the hedgehog concept, which is just a central overarching vision, really, really clear statement of what we're to do as a company. Fourth, they created a culture of discipline. Fifth, they used technological accelerators. Technology was not the key, but they used technology to accelerate themselves. Sixth, they took advantage of the flywheel concept, which is just, it's his word for think momentum. Again, go read the book, but what I, I all of that was to set you up for number seven which he lists first in the book, Good to Great. So for him, the starting point, the key factor in companies going from good company, doing well, to transition point, great company, doing spectacularly, and doing so over a sustained period of time. What he called level five leadership. Now, here's what's interesting about this. He discouraged his research team from analyzing and including leadership in their results repeatedly. His thinking was, look, all companies have leaders and big companies have great leaders. That's not going to be the factor. But he said, we followed, we ruthlessly followed the data and it consistently led us here. And what they learned about good to great leaders led them to this leadership matrix. So they identified level one, individuals, highly capable individual. Level two, contributing team member, contributes to the achievement of group objectives, works faithfully with others in a group setting. Level three, competent manager, organizes people and resources effectively, efficiently, pursuit of determined objectives. Level four is an effective leader, catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulates the group to high performance standards, but good to great companies consistently had level five leaders. And listen to this, level five leader, Jim Collins is not a Christian. This is not a spiritual book. This is a book about business, a best-selling book about business. Level five leadership, 
builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical combination of personal humility plus professional will. What? I found an article this week in which Jim Collins is writing a number of years later. He's describing these findings, and specifically he's talking about level five leadership. He, he starts off the article like this. In 1971, a seemingly ordinary man named Darwin E. Smith was named chief executive of Kimberly Clark, a stodgy old paper company whose stock had fallen 36% behind the general market during the previous 20 years. Smith, the company's mild-mannered in-house lawyer, wasn't so sure the board had made the right choice, a feeling that was reinforced when Kimberly Clark, director, pulled him aside and reminded him that he lacked some of the qualities for the position. <laughs> but CEO he was, and CEO he remained for 20 years. What a 20 years it was. In that period, Smith created a stunning transformation at Kimberly Clark, turning it into the leading consumer paper products company in the world. Under his stewardship, the company beat its rivals, Scott Paper and Procter and & Gamble. And in doing so, Kimberly Clark generated cumulative stock returns that were 4.1 times greater than those of the general market. Outperforming venerable companies such as Hewlett Packard, 3M, Coca-Cola, and General Electric. Smith's turnaround, I'm still reading... Jim Collins, Smith's turnaround of Kimberly Clark is one of the best examples in the 20th century of a, of a leader taking a company from merely good to truly great. And yet few people, even ardent students of business history, have heard of Darwin Smith. He probably would have liked it that way. Smith is a classic example of a level five leader, an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. According to our five-year research study, executives who possess this paradoxical combination of traits are catalysts for the statistically rare event of transforming a good company into a great one. Level five, Collins continues, refers to the highest level in the hierarchy of executive capabilities that we identified during our research. Leaders at the other four levels in the hierarchy can produce high degrees of success, but not enough to elevate companies from mediocrity to sustained excellence. And while level five leadership is not the only requirement for transforming a good company into a great one, our research shows it is essential. Good to great transformations don't happen without level five leaders at the helm. They just don't. One more paragraph. He titles this paragraph, Not What You Would Expect. Listen to what Colin says. Our discovery of level five leadership is counterintuitive. Indeed, it's countercultural. People generally assume that Transforming companies from good to great requires larger-than-life leaders with big personalities like Iacocca, Dunlap, Welch, and Galt, who make headlines and become celebrities. Compared with those CEOs, Darwin Smith seems to have come from Mars. Shy, unpretentious, even awkward, Smith shunned attention. When a journalist asked him to describe his management style, Smith just stared back at the scribe from the other side of his thick black-rimmed glasses. He was dressed unfashionably like a farm boy wearing his first J.C. Penney's suit. Finally, after a long and uncomfortable silence, he said, I guess eccentric. Needless to say, the Wall Street Journal did not publish a splashy feature on Darwin Smith ever. Personal humility plus professional will. Research tells us that that's the compelling combination through which you lead your family or your work or this community or our country. That's what takes companies from good to great. That's what takes families from good to great. And that research was not at all what the researchers themselves expected. In fact, Collins called it, didn't he? Counterintuitive, countercultural, but not for us. We knew. 
Our leader demonstrated this kind of profound humility. And he started the greatest organization in the history of the world. If we want to be effective mothers and wives, if we want to be effective, successful fathers and husbands, sons and daughters and neighbors, managers and small group leaders and friends, we will be like Jesus. We will be humble. Okay. How? (laughs) I don't know, first of all, but I've tried to just cull together some thoughts. You may have some others of your own. But I spent some time this week looking at what Mother Teresa said about humility, and it was profound, and looking at ancient Middle Eastern Catholic monk Thomas Akempis and what he said about humility, and I spent some time looking at our Jesus And I came up with six principles that I want to commend to you that I think are worth drilling into. I want you to keep score of these six principles as we go through them because I may or may not divide us into groups in a few minutes and having us talk about them. So we're going to look at six, not so much how-to, but sort of themes to think about. And I would encourage us, honestly, to grab one of these this week and talk about it and pray about it and open ourselves up to having God begin to massage this into our lives. Principle number one, speak less. Especially about yourself. Tell less you stories. Now some of you are more introverted. You're thinking, hallelujah, Ed. (laughs) Tell those extroverts to shut up. And that's what I'm doing. Let's throw a twist on this. Answer less questions. Christians in particular, I think we get ourselves in a lot of trouble because we just love to answer people's questions and they're not asking. So if you answer a question that someone is not asking, guess what? They're not listening. Answer less questions. Sometimes the struggle is what a person needs. It's not about you. Or me. C.S. Lewis again. C.S. Lewis says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person that they will be what most people call humble nowadays. They will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course they are nobody. Probably all you'll think about them is that they, they seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said and in you. If you do dislike them, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. They will not be thinking about humility. They will not be thinking about themselves at all. Speak less. It's not about you. Secondly, mind your own business. Don't concern yourself with the affairs of others unless they want your concern. And even then, be leery assiduously avoid those conversations that have this feel. Did you, did you, did, did you hear about, did you, wow, what? And then, and then what happened? Avoid that. That's going nowhere good for you or the other person. Don't try to manage other people. You know, by definition, when you're managing someone, when you're offering them advice, or when you're reminding them of something that they just may have forgotten, you are assuming that you know more and you're better. By definition, 
Don't manage other people, husbands and wives. Third, listen to your critics. Listen to your critics. Even the worst, the ones that are vomiting on you, 10% of it's true. So listen. If anyone tells you, Epictetus said, that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer, he was ignorant of my other faults, else he would not have mentioned those alone. Fourth, bless those who insult you, slight you, forget you, and dislike you. Do you feel overlooked or taken advantage of or forgotten? That feeling originates in pride. Jesus went so far as to say, bless those who persecute you. Humility takes the back seat so it is not bothered when others treat it like a back seat rider. Bless those who insult you, slight you, forget you, and dislike you. Work for their best. Honor them. Fifth, own your own strengths and let them speak for themselves. Humility is not the same as feeling badly about yourself. In fact, feeling badly about yourself in most aspects is the opposite of humility. You've just made it about you. Own your own strengths. Know what you're good at. Own them and let them speak for themselves. I love this. C.S. Lewis describes humility in this way. God wants to bring us to a state of mind in which we could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in that fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than we would if it had been done by another. God wants us in the end to be so free from any bias in our own favor that we can rejoice in our own talents as frankly and gratefully as in our neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. God wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even ourselves, as glorious and excellent things. He would rather us think ourselves a great architect or a great poet and then forget about it than that we should spend much time and pains trying to think ourselves a bad one. Own your strengths and let them speak for themselves. And you are good at many things. Finally, accept your limits. You are not as young as you want to be. You are not as talented as you'd like to be. You are not as attractive as you wish you were. You are not as smart or athletic or as knowledgeable as you want to be. We must accept this. The alternative to acceptance, of course, is chronic denial or chronic daydreaming. And neither of those is fruitful for you. Accept your limits. Speak less. It's not about you. Mind your own business. Bless those who insult you, slight you, forget you, and dislike you. Own your own strengths and let them speak for themselves. Accept your limits. Here's the thing. As I was going through this and pulling these together, I couldn't help but think of some of you. And then I realized that's an extremely arrogant thing for me to do. I should have been thinking about myself. The other thing I realized that some of you that I know well, that I really hope you were listening to one of these, 
I realized in most cases, you know it too. And that's the beginning of humility. Because there's no one here who looks at that entire list and goes, yeah, got that. I got that. I'm killing that one. Oh, yeah, I got that. One more time, C.S. Lewis, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step that is, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before taking that step. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Okay, so let's do a group exercise. Yes. They said, yes, they said with excitement, in fact. I want you to turn your chair and or your body in the direction of three or four people. Do not create giant circles. So circle yourselves up. This is a hard assignment. But I want you to go through this and tell your circle which one of these you're pretty good at. I know that's hard. But I want you to go through your circle and tell everyone which one of these you're pretty good at. Okay. If you had to allow that you, you might be able to grow in one of these areas, if, if we just put a gun to your head and we said one of these areas that I might be able to grow in is pick one. You don't have to say why. Just pick the one that you think you could spend some time thinking about and allowing God to stretch your heart in. Go. Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That phrase, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. In some instances, it can be translated, a thing to be taken advantage of. He might hold that over the rest of us. Look who I am. Or a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of us, and being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The night before... Jesus was betrayed. He gathered with his friends and his disciples and they celebrated the Passover meal, a meal that Jews had been celebrating for 1,400 years to celebrate the deliverance of their people from Exodus. And Jesus took that meal and did what no self-respecting rabbi would ever do. He reinterpreted it. A 1,400-year-old meal. Jesus said, this bread we break tonight this is my body. The whole story anticipated me, broken for you. We're going to spend a moment in confession, and after we do, you're going to take a bread tray, and you're going to be a priest to the person next to you. You're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And we're going to receive that. That's pretty epic. But before we do, let's confess. Here are the directions. I'm going to read a phrase, and I want you to say, deliver me, Jesus, with me in response. Let's try this together. One, two, three. Deliver me, Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me.
from the desire of being esteemed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted. Deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. Deliver us, O Lord, we pray. We offer ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. So someone will come to the end of your row and they'll hand it to you and you'll pass it to the person next to you and you'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. Yeah, that once was crowned with is crowned with glory now. Savior, now to wash our feet. Now at his feet we Let's do that bow. again. The head that once was crowned with thorns. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Savior, now to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow. One who took our sin and shame. Now robed in majesty. The radiance of perfect now shines for all to Let's just do the chorus. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory. Body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. And he blessed it. He said, this cup is my blood shed for the 
initiating a mystery that it would take the church thousands of years to fully understand. So this morning, you're going to look at the person next to you and you're going to say, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we hardly know where to begin, but we are so deeply honored and thankful for your humility, and we pray this morning that you would give us your mind as we drink in this symbol of your death, that we would be mindful and our hearts would be expanded and we would grow in humility. Touch us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. Last verse, Dean. Verse. The tomb that soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. I love that line. 
tomb that where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed. We gotta sing that again. Here we go. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days. His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Here we go. Our God has robbed the grave. Your name. Your name. Your name. Is victory. All grace will rise to Christ our Our friend Jesus, meek and mild, Savior of the world, the one whose name now is magnified and glorified and exalted and a bunch of other big words over every other name, whose character and greatness is bragged about by the heavens. And this morning we join in that chorus and brag about him. We thank you for the robe of humility that you wore for us and are now giving us. And we ask that you would stitch it together and place it around us so that our character, our mind, reflects yours. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said...